Welcome to the Recon Podcast. My guest today is psychologist Dr. Liam Wignall, who's recently written a book called Kinky in the Digital Age, where he explores gay men's subcultures and social identities. We talk about how advances in technology play such a major role in our day-to-day lives and how it affects our psychological, social, and sexual behaviors, especially on kink. Please enjoy the episode. Okay, so I'm sure that somewhere throughout this podcast or before we get to the end, I'm going to be under fire um, because, you know, I'm personally torn on this subject myself in terms of how, you know, tech has changed our lives, especially our kink lives. Um, I can see the good side in it. I can see the bad side in it. Um, recently, I took a part in a panel discussion on how apps and websites has changed, uh, you know, the kink dynamic and how we connect with people, how we interact with people and how we build relationships with people. Um, you may call me old fashioned, but I really miss the days when meeting people and building relationships was completely analog, I say in quotes, you know, you went to a bar, not to an app, you know, you went to socialize, you look someone in the eye, you chatted to them before hooking up, you know, you might ask a guy to buy a drink, you might ask a guy to dance. Yes, people, there was a time when we asked people to dance, you just didn't side up to them and rub on the dance floor, you know, send them an app while you're in a bar. Um, This was a way in terms of, you know, this analog lifestyle, you know, you would really have to Sum up some nerves and kind of, you know, hope for the best. Um, you know, nowadays, of course, with apps and websites, uh, recon.com included, um, people seem to need less guts. Although sometimes the crap they say to you can be incredibly fucking gut- gutsy, incredibly ballsy even. Um, and sometimes, you know, we get the impression like people have lost all sense of morality. You know, this is a, this is a, a, a common thread, a common conversation, a topic that comes up, uh, all the time. Um, people's approaches have become maybe even more extremely sex driven, slightly aggressive. Um, you know, and this attitude, this approach has clearly divided the community and not just the king community, the mainstream, uh, gay community as well. Um, as the events producer of Recon and also the brand manager, I have to admit, you know, that the platform clearly perpetuates the situation. You know, it's one of many app web platforms um, where gay men have created these types of cultures, these subcultures, you know, the ever-changing attitude towards sex and sexuality. This also includes when we talk about sexual identity and sexual behavior and how gay men are interacting today. Um, you know, and it's... Uh, there are very visible changes in people's social and their sexual identities, you know, also in the structure and the cultures we create for ourselves. Um, for a lot of people, you know, navigating this kind of dynamic can be a complicated minefield. Who would have ever thought that technology, which was ideally created to bring the world together, to bring people together, uh, has also been quite divisive? Or would you agree that it is? So on this very topic, talking about, you know, kink and technology, uh, I think I've rambled enough for a few minutes. So let's bring our guest in today to see if we can get a very different approach to the topic or to shed some light on the topic, um, to get an academic approach to the topic. So please welcome Dr. Liam Wignall to the podcast. Welcome, Liam. 
Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So first of all, um, I want to say that I read the book from front to back, found it very fascinating. Um, thank you for doing it. But before we talk about the book, I'd like you to just tell us a little bit about who you are as a doctor, as an academic researcher, um, maybe a little bit m about your kinkster lifestyle. You can figure out how much you want to tell us or not. Um, and then we can get into why it was important for you to write this book. And then we can delve into some of the topics you, fo uh, you focused on. So welcome, Liam. Yeah. And it was interesting kind of hearing your, the, the academic in me, as you were saying, your um, introduction, I wrote down so many different notes of like, oh, I must bring that up. Must bring that up. <laughs> um, so the academic is kind of the first and foremost. But yeah, I'm, um, I'm Dr. Liam Wignall. I'm a senior lecturer in psychology currently at Bournemouth University, but I think by the time this goes out, I'll have started at the University of Brighton. Um, so yeah, a weird time for that. Congratulations. But, thank you. Um, it was a bit sad that I see the book just plastered with Bournemouth University now. It's like, oh, I'm going to be in a different place <laughs> now. Um, but yeah, I, I, being an academic for, I don't know, like seven, eight years doing the PhD and stuff. Um, and I'm predominantly interested in BDSM slash kink subcultures. Um, specifically, my research looks at the, as you outlined, the impact of the internet on kink communities and kink subcultures and how it has, I would argue, revolutionized and changed fundamentally how people engage with kink and with sex more generally for sexual minorities. Um, and then kind of within the book and other research I've done, um, I do research into the subculture of pub play, kind of as an example of just how impactful the internet has been. You can see it through uh, the unique subculture of pub play. But I also just, I'm generally a sex researcher. I look at consent, pornography, um, change in sexual identities. But yeah, kink is where my, my academic home is, I suppose. So this isn't the first bit of research you've done at all. No, um, this was... Uh, when I was doing my PhD, that was kind of somewhat of part one of the book, that it was looking at the impact of the internet and identifying um, that there are differences between people who are embedded within kink communities and then how the internet has allowed people to engage in kink but not community, which I'm sure we'll come to. But um, no, kind of alongside writing the book and doing the PhD, I was doing the research on pop play, which was separate but now embedded within this book. Um and then kind of just collaborate with people within the UK, within the US, um, on kink projects, on not kink projects. Um, yeah, I'm I'm kind of a dab hand at just sex research, I suppose now. Cool. Sounds weird saying. <laughs> not weird at all. Well, I guess if we're going <clears> to <throat> get into the more academic side before, let's say, part two, we discuss maybe a few more fun things. I want to talk about something that you talk about right at the very beginning of the book, which I think is really vital to a lot of how our lives are now currently represented, how our lives are shaped. You know, you talk about three major cultural changes to gay men's experiences and how this has changed the history, um, you know, or the prehistory of the lives that we have now, you know, and that would be around 
you know, one, how the AIDS crisis has changed the meaning of sex for gay men until the discovery of PrEP, uh, which led, you know, to a completely new kind of sexual liberation and freedom for gay men. Um, I think some people might argue, you know, that gay men completely not just kick the door open, they kick the door open, knock the walls down, and their sexual liberation has taken on a whole new meaning. You know, the other thing you mentioned is also the change that has come about from the recognition of same-sex partnerships, you know, finally being given rights, um, rights for marriage and, you know, in our long battle for equality. Um, you know, this is definitely something that has changed how we live our lives today. Um, and especially talking about the freedoms we have and the perception, the changing perception by the other community um, you know, when they're looking at the gay community. And of course, the third thing is the introduction of social media and mobile apps, which means that, you know, men were no longer constrained by, as you say, constrained by geography when it comes to seeking a community and looking for intimacy. And I think there's a lot to be said for how gay men now have taken full advantage of having um, no borders, as it were. Uh, you know, in terms of when they want to reach out to people. And I think this uh, has a lot to say about how definitely how technology has changed our lives and how we interact, how we connect, how we make relationships and how we see people. Um, I'd like to include that it's also been a good way to find information. And I think, you know, this is whether the information is for good or whether it's for bad. People use it for all sorts of different things, but it's a good way for finding information. And I think when we're looking around how we find our information, especially in terms of kink and sexuality, you know, and uh, kink cultures and sexual cultures and how we take advantage of this newfound freedoms and rights we have as gay men, as gay people, um, as people from the wider LGBTQI plus community, you know, it's definitely infected affected uh, a whole range of topics, especially around sex and mental health concerns. And I think it's something that people don't necessarily talk about maybe as often as we should. It happens in small little pockets, but that's definitely something I want to touch on a little bit later on. I'm happy to say that, you know, we on Recon with the podcast, with the articles and some other things we do, we try to address uh, some of these topics, um, you know, and there are, of course, are other channels, uh, you know, two others I listen to, you know, what's the safe word uh, and the On Guard Cigar Salon, which are two completely different opposite ends in terms of maybe the people they attract or their their listening audience. But I think that they're still from both sides, you know, tapping into a younger audience, a more mature audience is also another really good avenue when you're thinking about the kind of information that comes out. And I think it's important for us to also keep in mind how people consume, you know, their information. Um, for a lot of people, it's uh, visual. For a lot of people, it's verbal. For a lot of people, they want us to sit down and watch something and they don't want to think about it. So I think there are some really good avenues. And one of the things people forget to do sometimes is reading. And I think this is also another reason why the book is so important. And I would probably suggest that people try to find it and read it and find out a little bit more about their community and maybe even get them to think more about their own kink lives and you know how it's shaped by technology. I would say, I would have asked you another question first, but I want to just go on that last point. How do you think kink and technology, or rather, how has technology changed your kink? Oh, my kink. Um, well, I think it takes me back to kind of my own adolescent development. And I grew up alongside the internet. I'm 30. And so kind of when I was exploring 
who I am, my own interests, my own kind of what I enjoyed, what I didn't enjoy. And as you say, using the internet, or I, I was using the internet to reach out to different communities, different people, um, but also just generally finding out what was there. So I think I'm, my age group is an example of people who grew up alongside the internet. And it makes sense that our, on our origin narratives and our stories of how our sexuality, sexual orientation, uh, and kink identity and kink narratives develop, it's been alongside the internet. So in terms of how the internet changed my engagement with kink, I suppose it didn't because it was always there. Um, and I'm thinking about kind of some of the older websites like Slave Boys back in the day um, and other kind of variations of those sites that that existed that were early iterations of the internet, um, you know, extensions of FitLads and that kind of stuff. The Gay YC, Manhunt, Gaydar, all these different websites I was exploring for my own kind of more broad sexual orientation as a gay man. Um, but then there were the the, the kink focused ones and Recon was one absolutely one of them as well. Um, it, it felt like a natural thing. Oh, I'm interested in something. I have questions. I go to the internet. I I find people I can ask my questions to. I can develop connections. Um, what we, some of the participants I interviewed in my book um, were absolutely older. Um, and I, I can't remember from the top of my head, but I think the oldest one was in their 50s. And they kind of had comments around, you have to adapt. You have to adapt to the internet that they they reminisced around, um, you know, what you did in the introduction of it was nice to go to these venues and see these people. And, you know, I, I question your idea of it being a bit more authentic, but certainly it was what happened pre-internet. Um, and this participant kind of said around they needed to change fundamentally how they, how they interacted with people, that when they were in venues, they were in offline spaces or analog spaces, um, they would get the question of what's your recon handle? What's your Twitter page? Um, what is a way for me to kind of develop this connection more? So I I don't know. I think I'm potentially the wrong person to ask how has the internet changed my kink journey because the internet is part of my kink journey. I think that's really interesting. And I mean, for me, it's clearly been a huge changing factor, you know, and I think my up until 2000, I think I created my first online profile in 2000. And that was my first experience of beginning to step out of a bar and stepping into online spaces and discovering what it was like. And I don't think I ever would have ever called it, you know, like, oh, tech is changing my sex life as a gay man. You know, it was just another this new and exciting and interesting and really fun way of reaching out to people and trying to build relationships and make other connections with people. Um, but I think a lot of people still struggle with that. Why do you think after so many years that tech has been around, websites and apps and other things have been around, people still struggle with how to best make connections. Why are we struggling with that? What is it about our our psyche, our behavior, our attitude as gay men, especially maybe as kinksters, that means today we still struggle with making connections with people with something that should potentially make it so much easier? I mean, I think part of it is just around the human nature in general. And it's, and it's not thinking that the internet um, and all these different forms of technology can 
can can allow you to create intimacy. It can provide the opportunities. It can provide the means for communication. It's still down to the individual to want to create that connection, want to create that intimacy. And we know that people act differently in online spaces for for various different reasons, um, for some better, for some worse, like you talked about, um, that people can be aggressive and sex-driven in these online spaces. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think that's a, well, aggression certainly is, but the idea of sex-driven and that kind of stuff, like that isn't a bad thing. I think the internet for those people allows them to be a bit more functional in what they're seeking. But, you know, I talk about the the people who go to recon um, or go to kind of any kink site, um, create a profile, message somebody, um, and they have a purpose. They have a reason for kind of chatting. This is what I want. Are you interested in my kinks? No, there's no reason for us to chat anymore. I've got my friendship networks. I've got my social networks. I'm here for kink. Um, whereas absolutely other people go to these websites and these online spaces to create intimacy, to, to find others, to, to create kind of these, these communities and networks and, and friendships, etc. But we know, you know, it's, and, and you spoke about it again, kind of in the offline spaces, it's nerves when you go up to people and say, oh, you know, can I buy you a drink? Which, by the way, I'm more than happy for people to still do that and buy me drinks. Um, and I do go up to people and kind of ask about that. But you're right, it, it is nervous. And it's partly because fears of rejection, fears of what happens if it goes wrong. The online space doesn't get rid of those things. Like you can you can be blocked, you can um, be ignored. And, you know, the good thing about recon is you can see when people have read your messages and ignored you like that still doesn't feel good so you're still kind of opening yourself up to be vulnerable and um yeah i don't think the internet changes that it just creates different ways for that intimacy to occur or rejection to occur it does and i don't i don't want to keep focusing on the negative because i mean i know there are very many positive stories about people making really good connections on the web you know one of the things that we talk about it's a slogan for us is that we're helping people to make more meaningful connections um but one of the things that we can't get away from is that technology has almost given people an excuse to be a complete asshole um you know when they're and i think I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, to think this way. And we've probably all experienced chatting to some twat online or at some profile or some site at one point or other. And I wonder whether or not, you know, it could also be people dealing with fear of rejection um, or fear of being, you know, cast aside or ostracized that make them behave this way. But you've you've gone to the recon events as as working for Team Recon, you must have run into twats and pricks in person who are just not very nice either. I, I, I absolutely have. God knows I've met my show of pricks. And so then it's twats. the same point. Like they're, <laughs> they're online and they're offline. There's, there's almost, a, um, I don't know, it feels easier to demonize the online as, as the, the reason that people are not very nice and they're not very nice online and offline. Yes, they might, or, or research those that people might engage in different kinds of behaviors because there's a screen there and you have a, a form of like mediated intimacy or um, this kind of like exploration of a virtual identity, etc. But I think it's also an offline behavior as well. I'm guessing just a rough side question. What I'm getting at is, do you think that there is a need for maybe some kind of online etiquette when it comes to how we communicate with people? It's almost like people forget how they forget 
kindness. They forget, like, you know, on the other side of that message is an actual person, not just an ass or a cock or, you know, something else they want to connect with. When you say that, I talk about it in chapter four, that actually there are online rules and online norms and there is an online etiquette. Um, But the interesting thing is nobody teaches you about this. You only learn the rules of these online spaces um, through kind of breaking them. Um, And again, I'm I'm not excusing troll behaviour, but the idea of, you know, you don't ask, you don't message somebody in the first message, ask for their real name because that's, you know, that's a faux pas. This is that uh, you've they've got their kink username, that or they've got their recon username, or their their online profile name. Like that's what they want you to call them. So why are you asking for their real information? Or um, I don't know. For some people, it's are you free right now? Let's meet up. For some people, that's a red flag, and you've got to kind of play the I don't know, play the dance and the back and forth of developing that connection, developing that conversation, um, which is an extension of rules that we have offline that again the same thing of if i'm at the rvt cabaret i don't go up and ask people their real name unless they want to introduce themselves to me as that i'll say oh you know um i, I recognize your face what was your what was your your profile name, yeah. username yeah your profile name um and i often get like a pub name or a handler a handle name um nobody told me that rule like that is something that and that is something that you just you learn through the interaction so you know coming back to your original question there is an online etiquette um i suppose some people just haven't found it or actually just don't care about it um okay i think i I think it also depends on the on on the on the platform as well that there's very different um and again i talk about this as well um that there's very different rules to uh, having a chat with somebody on Grinder versus on on Recon or something like that around the conversations that you can have, what you what you disclose, and again, like nobody, that there's not a, a school for Grinder, school for how to be successful and chat on Grinder, but yeah. you 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 People know what you can out. and can't do. Yeah, yeah. One of the I, you brought up a really good point here, and it was on the point of identities because I know for many people. Um, technology has been a minefield in navigating identities. And this is probably multi-layered because it's not just the identity of your profile, your personal identity, there's your kink identity, your sexual identity, how you keep them separate from your day-to-day life identity. How do we navigate dealing with things like not just worrying about protecting our own identities, but also in dealing with fake identities? I mean, I don't have an easy answer to that because as we chatted before before the recording around what do I disclose myself as, what what is my identity? And it's something I've constantly been thinking about being uh, an active member of the kink community, um, having a kink identity, but also having this academic identity and wanting to... Um, balance both those things of I'm a legitimate researcher, but I'm also, I have a kink identity and kink is an important part of who I am. So I don't think even as somebody who, you know, the book literally says social identities in the title and I still don't have a a direct answer to how one can navigate all those different things. I suppose I have zero 
idea around dealing with fake identities in terms of you're chatting with profiles and you're trying to figure out whether they're real or not? Could be. I mean, because we know that happens often on every platform. God knows on Recon, we have our fair share of them. And, you know, our poor customer support team, they're working (laughs) 10,000 miles a minute trying to deal with spammers. And it also questions, you know, why the hell would people want to do this sort of shit? But nevertheless, it makes another minefield, a trap, um, an obstacle that we'd rather not have to deal with that we that we have to. But it, it's it's one of the things that the um, that I, I didn't immediately expect to come up with conversations with with participants when I interviewed them. Mm. I would ask around um, what are the kind of risks associated with um, what are the what are the risks associated with kink and how do you navigate some of those risks? And I always expected answers around safe, sane and consensual, I make sure that we only play sober, all those kind of things. The majority of the participants referred to catfishing, referred to navigating the risks of meeting somebody and them saying who they say they are. And there was a wide variety of different techniques that um, participants implemented. One participant who really enjoyed feet, and that was his main thing. So I think he was partly getting um, what he referred to as porn, but he'd ask people to write their... Their, their username, the day that they were chatting and just a random word on the sole of their foot, take a picture of it, send it to them. Um, and that was a way of the participant, or that was, yeah, that was their kind of tool for having a level of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, others done similar things and hold up a piece of paper with your face picture in it. And then kind of even after they were like, okay, I, I sort of believe you are who you say you are. Um, let's meet up. There were different techniques that were then also used around screenshotting photos, sending them to a best friend and saying, I'm going to go and get fisted by this guy. If I don't come back, this is where I went. This was the face picture. Um, there was different techniques. And I think that is partly down to us, to, to I say the participants and also myself, because I'd done similar techniques back in the day and still do, um, growing up alongside the internet and actually catfishing and not really understanding or not knowing who was on the other end of the screen is is a potentially scary thing. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was clearly, you ask it, and actually it was at the, uh, the forefront of the participants' um, mind when I asked about risk, it was catfishing, um, which was really interesting. I myself have been catfished, I will admit, more than once. I'm sorry, I thought the pictures were a representation <laughs> of me. Broke my heart completely. I I just really wanted to meet up with you. I couldn't, I can't help it. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's, this brings us into something else that's really quite interesting. Um, In a lot of the, we talk about, you know, what technology has created and it has created, of course, these websites and these apps. And I mean, we know that there are other forms of when we talk about sex tech, sexual technology. Um, But one that you focus on, um, you called SSN, SSNs, SSNS, Sociosexual Networking Sites. Um, mm-hmm. Why this name? <laughs> well, I like a mouthful is kind of step we've number had, one. We've had, we've um, <laughs> But uh, you can't prove it. But we, we already know what social, se- social networking sites are. Yeah. When we hear SNS, Facebook, Twitter, although maybe not now with Elon, um, but these kind of dominant platforms come to mind. So when I was speaking to 
it was actually, it was speaking to uh, pups and finding out about how they use Twitter that it led me to think that social networking site isn't an accurate representation of how these platforms and apps are being used by participants, by the people, yeah, by the people I spoke to. For the pups, they, they basically created pup Twitter. Um, and it's still apparent now. And I think there's arguably kink Twitter, which is a section of profiles all with this kind of common theme around kink, around pup play that they use it more like a dating profile, like a, like a recon profile. But actually, um, there's benefits to engaging with Twitter as opposed to or alongside some of the other apps. Um, it's in the app store. It has good functionality or, you know, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. They have good functionality. Um, it's easy to engage with different forms of media. People fundamentally already know how to use them. So it's not having to learn a different platform or app. So they were, they were going on and using it for sexual purposes and whether that was sending um, explicit images and in, in direct messages or kind of tweeting or posting about them publicly. Um, they were having kind of sexual conversations. They were using things like Twitter and Instagram to, to meet up to, Oh, you go into the, the, the fetish cabaret. Cool. I'll meet you there. Like they were having those conversations on these social networking sites. So I think the fact that these sites are serving social and sexual purposes it's more accurate to describe them as socio-sexual networking sites or SSNS. And I think Twitter, Instagram, etc., is one example of how you could call it an SSNS. It's being used by a sexual subculture for sexual purposes. But given that the main description and function of the site is just social more generally, I think it's, you know, SSNS for some people. For something like Recon, Club Collard, FetLife, they are fundamentally for sexual minorities, but they're not fundamentally used for sexual purposes, but they serve the social purpose as well. So again, I think it's accurate to think of something like Recon as a socio-sexual networking site, that people form relationships, form chats, communities, chat uh, friendships, but also find people to piss on. Like it, it serves that dual purpose. I think that these SSNs, the SSNS, definitely been something that I would say has been hugely beneficial in terms of being a good avenue or good platforms where gay men, especially kinksters, have become so much more sexually liberated. Uh, and in some instances, we can very much see they're not afraid to express themselves at all. But that raises some other questions, which I would like to talk about after this break. Something tight and shiny for a special event? Want ideas for your next session? At Regulation, we're stocking thousands of products, including leather, rubber, toys, electro, restraints, and playroom furniture. Now shipping worldwide. Or get free UK shipping when you spend over £25. Visit our London store or shop online at regulation.co.uk. Regulation Kink Delivered. 
So welcome back. We are back chatting with uh, Dr. Liam Wignall about kinky in the digital age. And before the break, we were just talking about, um, you know, how sociosexual network networking sites um, has been a really good, let's say, a springboard for getting gay men, especially kinksters, to become even more sexually liberated and open with their sexual lives and open with their kink lives, um, you know. And I, let's just go back one bit now, because the word kink is something we throw around all the time, something we talk about all the time. So, Liam, I would like you to tell me, what is kink? And if someone, well, I'm asking you the question. So let's say if someone asks you, how would you go about defining exactly what kink is? Well, after I say buy my book to find out, uh, I kind of preface it with it's complex. Um, and it's it's somewhat unusual because in all, all the participants I interviewed, the first question was, okay, so, you know, you, you're agreeing to take part in this research on, on kink, but can you describe what kink is to me? And they without fail, all said either it's complicated. Um, my favorite one was one participant said it's nebulous. Um, and they said it's different for different people. But for me, kink is, and then they go into that kind of description. Um, so I think it's important that I um, kind of start by saying it's complex and it's different for different people. Um, and I suppose it depends academically on your theoretical perspective that there's arguments that kink is a sexual orientation, that it's uh, an integral part of someone's identity um, where they have a broad interest in kind of scare quotes or quotation marks, um, non-normative sexual practices. For previous definitions, um, they've and my one as well, highlight that generally there's some sort of power dynamic involved or the perception of a power dynamic. Um, that seems to be kind of something constantly um, appearing in definitions of kink. Some people might focus in on particular activities that they would consider kinky um, and say, well, actually kink is about, kink is about bondage. Kink is about leather. Kink is about spanking. And I think it, it just kind of gives an indication that it's a lot and it's a lot for different people. It's, I suppose, uh, you know, you can hear me kind of going back and forth because it is difficult and it is normally a five minute answer to different people. As a broad description, I'd say a spectrum of non-normative sexual practices um, undertaken for, for pleasure of various kinds, whether it be sexual, psychological, um, emotional, and then broadly speaking, an understanding of what people are doing are kinky. If it feels like it's kinky between the two people doing it, then yeah, that kind of supports it's kinky as well. You're not getting the concise answer that you wanted. I apologize. Oh no, it's really good. It's it's really good. It's 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 explaining quite a lot, and I think it it also leaves us to think about our own definitions of what we think kink is or what is kinky to us. You know, I have two very good friends who I would say are if I even dare to use the term, they're very mainstream gays. They would never describe themselves as fetishy or kinky. Um, but a lot of their sexual activity is extremely kinky and extremely fetishy, but they will swear blind that they're not kinky or fetishy in any way, shape or form. I'm like, guys, come on, call a spade a spade, call it what it is. This is what you're doing. No one's going to 
judge you or look at you very differently or think of you differently um, for knowing that you get up to some little extracurricular activities, you know, when you're in the bedroom or in the bushes, wherever you are. No one cares. But I think like that, you know, those individuals, if they say they're not kinky, they're, they're not kinky. They're engaging in what you might describe as kink activities, but it shows the importance of context, of a shared understanding. Uh, when I spoke to some participants, because, you know, as, as you heard, I bloody wrote a book on it and I still struggle to provide a nice, concise definition. When I mentioned, asked my participants around what is kink, they struggled as well. And I provided an example. I said, okay, pink fluffy handcuffs. If they're used, are they kinky? And it, it divides opinion based, and there, there wasn't a clear um, thing that divided people. For some people who were massively embedded within kink communities and turn up to events and have all this gear and whatever, versus people who uh, they engage in kink activities very, very rarely, but would still say that they're kinky to an extent. There was no kind of clear camp. For some, pink fluffy handcuffs are not kinky because they're kind of, they're the Ann Summers version of sex. They are, um, they are just kind of a, a sexual extra where my favorite one was a participant said, if it's not black, it's not kinky. So pink fluffy <laughs> handcuffs are not kinky. But uh, black restraints, they're kinky. Because I would say Ann Summers is bloody kinky for sure. But it, I mean, it depends. Is it, is it kinky for, and not to kind of broadly stereotype, but like you've got a heterosexual monogamous couple who have bought these few different things and they're, they're spicing up their sex life, which is kind of the, exactly. the tagline for Anne Summers. So for them, that would if be very using, kinky. But for, for them, they'd be like, oh no, we just, you know, we were naughty in the bedroom. They yeah. wouldn't say it was kinky. Um, whereas I spoke to other people and they said, and I mentioned pink fluffy handcuffs. So they're like, it doesn't matter how the handcuffs being used. Yeah. Is there a power dynamic? Yeah. So it doesn't matter if there's handcuffs. I, I don't need handcuffs. I tell somebody to get down on the floor and they do it. And already there's a context that says we're only, you know, we, we haven't even done any particular activities, but this is kink. Yeah. Because there's a power dynamic. There's an understanding of what is going on. Um, and we could just be kissing, but that is kinky to, to those two people because at any point in that scenario, the Dom could be like, do this. And they're like, okay, that context is kinky. I love, one thing I love about this community, which I also find very interesting, and it can maybe even sometimes be a little bit shaking, you know, our kinks and our fetishes, our likes and our dislikes and our, the things that attract us that catch our eye has created quite a bit of division in our little community. And I think this has definitely um, given birth to little cliques and groups, and as we would say, cultures and little subcultures and other dynamics that exist within our uh, incredibly diverse um, LGBTQI plus kink fetish community. In your book, you give a very huge focus, you know, uh, on gay men's subcultures and especially on pop play. Why did you choose pop play? as the case study on kink sexual subculture. Well, you mentioned gay men and pop play specifically. Um, I can preface it with, I focus on gay men specifically mm. because they were the community that I had access to. Yeah. And as a gay man, I, I felt that was the easiest community for me to write about, engage with. And actually, 
there isn't that much research on kink in general. The research that there is focuses generally on pansexual um, or predominantly heterosexual kink communities. So there's a significant lack of research on gay men in general, gay, gay kinky men in general. On pub play, it, it kind of happened authentically. Um, when I was a 22-year-old PhD student um, conducting interviews for, for my PhD, which, um, which focused on kind of the internet's impact on, on kink engagement, I, I started kind of interview two, I think it was, and I said, oh, you know, what are you into? And they said bondage, um, whips and change, chain, whips and chains, pub play, um, rubber. And I was like, oh, you know, I've not, I've not heard of that before, but I won't, I won't press it. It might just be kind of the, this thing that this person's into. And it, you know, it didn't really come up in the rest of the interview. The second part is, or the next participant I interviewed, they set, started to kind of say similar things of what you're into. Oh, well, I'm into, I'm into rubber. I'm into pub play. Um, actually pub play is one of the biggest ones. I was like, I've, I've not heard of this. Can you, can you describe it to me a bit more? And I said, Oh yeah, it's, um, it's acting like a dog. It's, it's kind of dressed up in rubber and getting on all fours and doing A, B and C. I was like, okay, I've, I've not heard of this. Um, went to Google and kind of Google Scholar and the academic side of things. Um, typed in pub play, nothing came up. There was a 20, oh, I can't remember the exact date, 2009 or 2014 article on zoophilia. So, um, wanting sex with animals, basically, uh, real animals. Um, and it mentioned that there are different steps to zoophilia. And one of the steps was engaging in a form of role play that might mirror dogs. That was the only kind of reference to it. And I was like, that doesn't quite sound like what participants were telling me about. So I, I, do, I conducted another interview. Again, kind of pub play came up. I was like, I need to, I need to learn more about this. A, it's important for my participants. And B, selfishly, there's no academic research on this. I think I found my niche. Yeah. So I conducted, I, I created an ethics application and began kind of conducting research on people who engage in pub play. Um, I was so lucky at the time that coincidentally one of the one of my friends when I lived in the northeast was quite into pub play and was one of the earlier users of pub twitter of twitter creating a, a pub account he introduced me to a few people um and it kind of snowball sampled from there the more so I, I conducted that study into it and this was separate from kind of all the phd stuff and I thought it was really interesting and I thought like I was so happy that a, I was the first person to do it because of that niche, but B, I was able to come at it from a non-pathological perspective and say, these individuals are engaging in pop play for a variety of reasons with no link to zoophilia or bestiality. It's a form of role play. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's a form of relaxation. It's um, an escapism. It's sexual. It's crossover with kink. Um, and actually, it's a really complex activity. When I started to develop my research into pop play and kind of the, the the other project of the internet's impact on kink, I kind of realized that they were the same project, but just different angles. Because pop play is, or certainly when I was conducting research into it, um, majority young adults, 18 to 25, who were engaging in it, they described how pop play was being used as a tool to explore kink in general, and they described how integral Twitter was to them. And, and other kink SSNS, like Recon, Club College, et cetera. But it was an example of uh, a new subculture at the time when I was researching it, 
using the internet. And this was people who were, were younger than me um, or roughly about the same age, so grew up alongside technology and, th- and basically said, I'm into these activities. Why would I not explore them through the internet? Um, oh, there's nothing specifically for me. I know I'll create it. Do you think that that tech could be maybe one of the main reasons why pop play is so popular? Was because it came out um, to a much younger crowd of people who were very much more tech savvy than the, you know, the old bitter bastards like myself. <laughs> Your words. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, that's why I focus on it as an example. Yeah. Um, because it allowed, you know, when, when people were, I think there's, there's two things going on with, with why play became and potentially is, but I think it's dropping somewhat in popularity now. Um, but certainly why play became so popular that these younger adults, 18 to 25, who were engaging in pop play, found it through the internet or when they were kind of searching Twitter in general, came across different profiles. Um, other participants described that um, Tumblr, RIP, before it kind of got desexualized, um, when they were exploring their kinks in general and looking at various different things on Tumblr, they they came across popular pups on there. When they were on Grindr, they, they saw a pup profile. So pup play was starting to um, embed itself in all different forms of technology. Um, the other main reason why I think pop play really took off, A, they're adorable, but it's so flexible as, as a kink that there's no set, you know, we talked earlier about rules. There's no rules for how to engage in pop play. There's no uniform. There's crossovers with so many other different kinks that you see. I went to the RVT when... Um, when Recon did the Fetish Week London and had the pop event, um, and kind of the last one in a good few years, there was just so much diversity um, that I saw leather, lycra, uh, rubber pups. I saw ones with hoods. I saw ones without hoods. Various different ages. And one of the things I really think is really nice about pop play is I saw different gender um, identities, different kind of gender expressions. Um, I saw different body types in terms of it wasn't just kind of Twinkie bodies. I saw a whole range of different kind of bodies and, and individuals. That flexibility means that, and, and the overlap with other kinks means it's a really nice introduction to to kink. That oh, I'm I'm interested in exploring submission and domination. Okay, why don't you try pub play as a lighter form of it? Because if you don't like something, you bark and or bite the hand and then go the other way. <laughs> um, if something goes wrong, you're a dog. It's fine. Um, Oh, you're also interested in what to explore Lycra? Cool. Put the Lycra on and then get down on all fours. You want to be anonymous? There's hoods for that. Um, and the, the internet, sorry, the final point, the internet, um, like the, the, the flip has happened that the popularity of pub play has been observed and you now have shops like Mr. S. They have Puppy Park and they have whole sections dedicated to pub play that you have, um, Clone Zone with a, a pub play website on their profile. Sorry, with a pub play section on their website. You have kind of the commodification of pub play that you have wish hunts for 20 quid that rip off the, um, the rough stuff ones. There's whole businesses around pub play. People are thinking, Oh, we can make money off this. We can, you know, it, the popularity of it has been observed. I think, do you think that the increased popularity is now starting to have a bit of a, negative effect. And what I mean by this is our relationship with technology is changing. Clearly, technology's relationship with the king community is changing. And by this, I also mean in terms of how they now start to begin to 
censor just how much of this newfound freedom we were a few years ago really happy to put online and express, they're now starting to force us to pull back on our expression. Um, Who? Big technology. You know, it's, we know now very recently, a number of people you would never believe like a platform like Twitter would suspend or delete someone for something that they may post that they may be that they may deem that may be too kinky or too explicit considering what's already online on the platform but we can already see how especially uh, a lot of kinksters are ending up in facebook jail and especially instagram now completely censoring a lot of what might have been previously allowed they're starting to pull back on not just maybe the what, but it also maybe appears as though the who. So I think there's now another shift in, like I said, not our relationship with tech, but tech's relationship with us. It's like now they're starting to pull back. And why do we think this is happening? Why is the pullback now coming from big tech? When I released the pub Twitter article, um, I was very hesitant around it. And I'm happy it's got some popularity, but not too much because of what you're talking about, that these are underground subcultures operating on on big tech platforms. Mm. And actually, there is a little bit of breaking the the guidelines of no news, he know this. Um, so I think one of the reasons is people are breaking the, the guidelines that you, you often see pictures that are, um, I don't know, on, on Instagram I'm thinking about now, people will post in their stories, I can't believe this image got flagged. And it's like, well, your entire ass is out and you're kind of bent over. I can understand why the image got flagged. Yeah. So nudity, absolutely one. Um, I mean, these sites are also hypocritical. And I think it's partly a problem of the sites that you see gorgeous um, women in bikinis posting around their holiday and they have millions of followers. They make the platform millions of pounds. Um and they, they allow those images out there because they make money. But then the images of the same individual with less following, um, potentially not making the platform money, they're more likely to just delete, um, not let them kind of sponsor their images, et cetera. So it's, you know, it's problems with the, with the sites. And I think it's always been there. And I don't know, maybe we're chatting about it more now. We're seeing more examples of it because more like Kingstagram, that as a phrase, I didn't, ever imagine would be a thing but there are some amazing kinksters who have kind of online profiles that i, w- I would argue are artistic and expressions of kink interests etc um so the it's potentially happening more now because there's more people doing it um but you're right it's like it's hypocritical or i would argue it's hypocritical it's um it's about the sites making money but there are the the the, the guidelines and the, and the rules of the websites like Instagram is not a sex platform. Twitter is not a sex platform. But this isn't a, this isn't a let new them thing. Know. <laughs> Someone should let them know. Someone should let no, them know. Because, but then chapter chapter seven of my book would be null and void, be a historical text. Um, but it, this isn't new. It, like you mentioned, what's the safe word? Amp has, or Pop Amp has constantly been talking about how YouTube demonetizes sex educators, um, sex positive influencers, um, those kind of individuals. It's damaging to those individuals. It's damaging to the people who want that content and want to educate themselves. I'm absolutely not defend on YouTube at all. There are so many videos uploaded daily 
that the algorithm and those kinds of people are pe- people are going to get hurt by the algorithm. Yeah. Um, they've demonstrated how it is sexist, how it is um, selective, and allows accounts with that, that, that generate them lots of money to to still exist. Yeah. I think it's just a problem for now we have to deal with. and We know this firsthand. Yeah. They're always watching us very closely. So we've had to now begin censoring ourselves when we think about what it is we're posting online, um, you know, because we don't want to be kicked off of any platform. I don't think anyone else does. So I think maybe this is something that a lot of kinksters should start to think about a little more rather than running completely amok with this new sexual expression, this new sexual freedom uh, with kink is that they should maybe give a little more thought, word of advice here, peeps, give a little more thought to what it is you're posting online if you don't want to end up in Facebook jail or, you know, get red flagged or blocked or suspended by Instagram. I mean, there is something, a lot of the freedoms we have comes from pushing the boundaries, but I think we have to choose our battles very wisely. And especially when we think about things that could be deemed as sexually explicit, we now know that the definition of this is so incredibly fucking broad. It's sometimes hard to understand. And it's like you say too, you look at a profile on somebody else's page and they're like all out. And the next pick, someone has been banned for posting something that's that's very much the same. I think there's a unique problem with kink as well, that for some people it's absolutely sexual, for others it's it's not sexual. It's more of a focus on psychological or physiological arousal, which yeah. might be erotic to some extent, but not explicitly sexual. And explaining that kind of dynamic to other people, to, to, to big tech companies, you know, you're not going to win that battle. So you could argue this picture of me in in a Lycra singlet. I don't know why I keep going back to Lycra, but in a Lycra singlet I is, is social. Who knows, Antoine? Um, but the, you, you might argue that this isn't sexual for me, but actually for, for others hmm. it is. And it's easier for the platform to just take them down across the board. When you mention, you know, the psychological, it also makes me think about, you know, the other constantly recurring topic of, um, you know, tech in terms of, you know, whether it's one of the SSNs or, you know, Twitter, Grind, Instagram, another social media platform. That's also, um, I guess, the culprit when it comes to how the increasing amount of mental health issues now start to come up, um, you know, in terms of people's interactions with tech itself or their interactions with also dealing with the other people they choose to communicate with and the issues that also may arise from the creation of these subcultures and these some groups that may lead to less inclusivity, more exclusivity, um, people feeling more ostracized. You know, there are sex positive issues, body positivity issues, all coming up now. And for as much as we might praise the tech, uh, I, I think it also kind of fails us in some respect. Or would you argue that we're responsible for this ourselves? I never quite know where your questions are going. It's nice to have to keep properly focused on them. <laughs> I mean, I can speak to my own experiences here. The amount of times I've deleted Instagram or I've deleted Grindr, never recon. Um, but I've deleted them because of my own mental health that, you know, somebody again, who researchers should potentially know better and know that these lives are curated online, knows that you know, there, there are healthy ways. To do. 
I just have to delete them. And I have to take a step back and think this, this isn't good for me. I'm, I, I feel like I'm being impacted. Um, it doesn't matter that you, you, you know, yeah, it, it doesn't matter that you have kind of the, the understanding of this, these online lives aren't real or I don't know, like thinking about Twitter and how it's used by kinky individuals or, or recon and you see people attending events. Like that is only one aspect of their lives. I think that is kind of a, I think it's specifically your question, but if you're looking for tips, delete them occasionally. Think about, you know, taking a break or chatting to people. Um, it's kind of another one, voice and concerns. Yeah. There's another chapter that you talk about and it's on social versus sexual motivations. And, you know, it's also thinking about people's approach when they're connecting and going online. So when we're thinking about how we connect and how we choose, what's your motivation when you're making connections with people? How do you personally go about deciding how much you invest in connecting with someone or whether or not they're actually able to, let's say, meet your expectations if you actually get into it with any expectations to start with? I don't think they'll, they'll ever meet my expectations. Oh, uh, challenge. The challenge is down. <laughs> how do I go about... Uh, Connecting with people. Um, well, I think when we spoke about risk online um, and how when you're chatting with people, like how do you um, think about their authenticity, whether they're real, etc. Like I have those same things that when I when I see an online profile, there are a bunch of different things that I will look out for that will give me a, a taster into, in, into that person. And granted, this person is curating their their online profile and they want to um, say a different thing but you know I, I try and look past that to an extent do they have lots of different pictures on their profile is um is one indication and what are the pictures of and i think i talk about that yeah in in social in, in chapter five i talk about this that you can kind of get a reading of what a person's looking for in their profile um if they've got pictures that are face pictures versus gear pictures they kind of give an indication of either this is what I'm into or this is what I'm looking for. The about me section, which I think on Club College is called uh, the big dreaded box. And I think it's just such a good name for it. Like this about me section, this personal one that is often quite daunting for people. And once they've kind of curated it, they're like, I'm not leaving that. That's, you know, that's good. I put work into it. Um, I'm one of the people that takes the time to read it all, unless it's the BDSM test, in which case I just ignore that because... You know, they make me laugh. The the friends link to the profile um, is often kind of a good indicator of how embedded the person is within the community. Um, and not having these things isn't necessarily a, a a red flag, but is a indication for me of you know they're, they're on recon. They have a profile. Yeah, let's use recon as the example. They're on recon. They have the profile, so they're already interested in kink to some extent. The more information I see on the profile, I think the more likely that they're on recon for social and sexual reasons. You know, I mentioned the the, the friends linked. Um, there's the events that you can now list yourself as attending. And I, I think you can do previous ones, but I can't remember. But you see that information on the profile that gives an indication of what they're looking for. And I think it speaks to, which I've not actually mentioned yet, but one of the key things within the book, it talks about how people engage in kink in different ways now, um, thanks to the internet, that it allows people to engage in kink without the community side of things. So I label it, you know, not, not too intelligently, but just as community and non-community members. The profile I described with, with lots of information is what I'd see as an example of a community member 
where they have social and sexual motivations for engaging kink, that they have friends linked to their profile, they're going to events, so their social circle is around it, and they might be going to the events and straight to the dark room, but actually they'll often know people and um, have some sort of interaction in between recharge and loads and whatever. Um, on the flip side, the profiles with less information, um, but you know they might have the basic profile picture or on the About Me section, I'm looking for A, B, and C. Um, I describe those as non-community participants where they're interested in kink, but they don't want to engage in in the events, in the in the and kind of the idea of like attending all the social events in Fetish Week London, they're not interested in that. I think uh one participant, I think it was Robbie in the book, um, talked about how he was interested in Star Trek, really loved Star Trek as a as as something to watch on TV. Why the hell would he go to a Star Trek convention? Like they're very different things. Um, and I think it speaks, and so for those kind of non-community individuals, um, there's sexual motivations. And I know this came back to, you asked, how do I kind of distinguish differences in profiles? One of the two things I look out for is, are they community? Are they non-community? Are they more, um, or are they solely sexual in relation to what they're looking for in kink and kink ends in the bedroom, ends with orgasm, not a defining part of who they are, or are they more community and Sexual, absolutely, but also social as well. Um, I think that kind of encapsulates what you were asking. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got... Oh, completely. I've got a few more questions for you, and then we start to wind down a little bit. This book is, if I'm reading it right, six a culmination of six years of research... What did you learn about yourself and your own relationship with technology during the six-year period? Lots of different things. Is that, a, is that a good enough answer? No, not good enough at all. That's <laughs> not telling me what I want to know. Tell me the good things. Uh, tell you the good things. Um, tell me well, the good I learned things that there's a... and the bad things. If you learned something, you know, tell, share that with us also. If you, if you feel free to. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I kind of learned just how integral technology is to me, um, to my gay identity, to my kink identity. It's the way that I formed friendships, my social networks. While I was conducting, um, I was conducting research um, as part of those six years, like I met, I, I, I created best friends that I'm still friends with now that I'm regularly at the fetish, fetish events with. I'll be there on the 30th with them um, at, at fire, even if it is a fire. So I, I developed kind of social connections. I developed my social side of kink. Because mm-hmm. um, when I spoke earlier around how, to, you know, you asked how the technology change my, change my journey or, or however it was phrased, um, like technology was always there. But I think it moved from, I moved from a non-community member more towards the community member. Like I started to develop a, a broader kink identity, kink sexual slash social identity. I developed social networks. My engagement with with the research through attending the events, speaking to people, doing the interviews and, you know, people sharing their stories with me, it completely changed my my perceptions on kink. And it made me realise it's not just an activity where someone puts on Lycra and face fucks you or whatever activities they do. Like there's social elements to it. There's friendship networks. It's It's a community. And I got the opportunity to learn about the history of kink that I, I sort of knew academically, but actually hearing 
personal narratives of of my participants um, on their kink journey for the community people on their kink journey on on how things developed. Like my favorite interview was with the older and the older oldest participant who told me about how everything changed and. They tell me about all the different events in London because um, I grew up in Liverpool for 19 years and then in the northeast for six. Like everything about the the southern kink scene, I was completely absent from. And there isn't that much kink in Newcastle, or there was years ago in terms, or there wasn't years ago in terms of social stuff. So I got to learn all about that, and yeah, I think that that fundamentally changed my understanding and perceptions of of kink, and it, it emphasised how important technology was to allow me to engage in that with that community when I couldn't be there physically, that I could still develop friendships, I could still maintain contact and touch base with people. And yes, I was seeing people going to events and on forums, people writing stories of all these different hookups they were having. And it was very, very, uh, I was jealous. But at the same time, I felt like I was, I don't know, part of the journey. I was, I was living vicariously through them. I was, yeah, it, I think a tagline, technology allowed me to engage in kink when I couldn't. Does writing this book inspire you to want to continue research specifically into kink and fetish? Like what's coming up next for you? I, I met up with a, a professor at a conference, um, introduced myself, said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Dr. Anne-Lee Wignall. Um, and they kind of said to me, oh, you know, I, I think I've heard your name. And we both just stood there in silence. I was like, I'm the pub guy. And they were like, oh, I know who you are. And that's happened about five times now. So I don't think I can sort of escape researching pub play or kink in general. Um, so I've currently got multiple other articles related to pub play, um, looking at developments that have happened in pub play um, over the last 10 or so years. Um, and we've done a, a global survey of people who engage in pop play, which we advertised on Recon and got participants. And thank you very much for that. So I'm, I'm still carrying on the pub research. I suppose the, the next couple of things I'm interested in is I would love to do biological research on kink. Um, because there's currently some that looks at changes in, in hormones, serotonin levels, testosterone levels, pre and post kink engagements, but there isn't enough. And I think that would be so fascinating to say, look, these people are, saying how good their kink experiences are but there's physiological changes they feel they say they're less stressed and their testosterone levels go down like i'd love to be able to do that stuff and then next year there's actually another book coming out on kink uh that is an editor book with me um robin bauer who's a wonderful researcher and brandy simula again another great researcher we've got an editor book on kink that looks at i think it's called power pain and pleasure uh the three p's and that looks at different or the, the, there's authors who are writing about a whole bunch of different things related to kink. Um, but there's a, a chapter on pub play in there, but also rope play, um, kink in South Africa. Um, what else? Lesbian, trans, queer communities in Germany. Um, yeah, so if you're interested in kind of anything that I've spoken about now, you should keep an eye out for that one next year. So can you tell our listeners, where can they find a copy of Kinky in the Digital Age? I mean, they'll currently struggle because it's sold out in the UK. Bloody but hell, what good soon. is that? <laughs> um, the hardback's available. So you can get it. We all like in, a hardback. No comment. Um, you can get it in major bookstores. Um, but I can, I will, I will make sure that in the, in the preview of the, the podcast, I can give a discount code as well if you buy it through Oxford University Press. Um, but yeah, they can type it in online and you'll, you'll see it. Oh, um, I'm also happy to, 
if people can't find it, I'm available on Twitter at Liam Wignall and they can message me and I can give them links, etc. Fantastic. We'll try to put some links in the bottom of the podcast as well in the introdu- introduction text. Um, so one last question. Apart from telling us that you're likely to be on your knees in the dark room of the Recon London party on the 30th of December, have you got any final words for our listeners? Well, I, I'm not sure how I could top what you've just uh, finished. Give it your best. Um, final words for listeners. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I suppose when, whenever I think of interesting things related to kink, I think of the constant back and forth between old guard and new guard and that what we're seeing now isn't necessarily the finalised version of kink subcultures and kink communities. The internet is still going to be constantly evolving. Um, like we thought Twitter was quite stable and look at it now. Um, these websites are going to be changing. Um, things are going to, we're now learning how to be kink, uh, kinky and physical in person in a, in a post lockdown world. Um, and there are still kind of concerns and absolutely for some people that, you know, that they're still experiencing lockdown to some extent with, if they have certain health issues. Um, so I think it's, you know, a final thought is we're still, de- we're, we're now redeveloping intimacy. And I think it's important to recognize that the internet can play a really good part in that. Cool. I mentioned somewhere at the start of the podcast that we can and we should think about technology as something that uh, can and once again should bring people together and allow us to make these more meaningful connections, whether they're social or intimate. And we should think also about how we use technology to bring the King community together and how we can teach people to safely explore and enjoy their kinks and their fetishes and create these uh, incredible social networks, how we can empower other like-minded people um, to think about how they enjoy and express themselves in a kinky or uh, a fetish way. I would like to thank everyone for listening and let's please give a huge thank you to Dr. Liam Wignall for joining us on today's podcast. Please remember to grab a copy of the book if you want to learn and explore more about kink and tech. And hopefully we can get him, we discussed it very briefly in the break, to give a talk at uh, the Masterclass at Fetish Week London 2023. So if you're very interested in today's podcast, stay tuned. There'll be more to come from Dr. Liam Wignall with Recon in the future. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye for now. Thank you.